When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, we love Burger King Grilled Dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. Thank you so much for listening in. I'm your host, Daniel LaRue, and I'm really proud of the episode that we've put together for this week. First up, we have Sam Amick. He's a star reporter for the USA Today. He's been all around, knows the league incredibly well. Next, for my life in basketball, I've brought in somebody I'm really proud to have, CBA luminary Larry Kuhn, talk about his role and everything like that. And then I have Real GM writer Charles Modiano, who ta- we talk about the Knicks and their future, their present, and a lot of kind of nuances of where that team is going. But first up is Sam Amick. We mostly talk about the Western Conference and the disparity between the West and East. It's about 22 minutes. Hope you enjoy it. So thank you so much to Sam Amick for coming on. You got it, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So one of the big storylines so far in the NBA has been the imbalance between the Eastern and Western Conference. Is that something that you see continuing, maybe not even at the same scale that we've seen so far? Well, I mean, it's it's not a new storyline, obviously. It just, you know, seems to be, you know, worse than ever right now. And I think that's the biggest thing. I, I actually, we're going to have a story on that in tomorrow's, this is a shameless plug here, but, but in uh, USA Today tomorrow. And, and so because of that, I talked to Jeff Van Gundy about the topic. And one of the points that Jeff made was that for one, you know, and I, and I think the data would bear this to be true, but uh, the East has just been playing the West quite a bit so far, and that's partly what, you know, why you're seeing these battered records. And so once the East is playing the East more frequently, then, uh, then maybe it gets cleaned up a little bit. But, um, you know, it, it's not what we thought it was going to be, obviously because of teams like Brooklyn and New York that uh, we thought were going to be in the top five in the East, you know, just being god-awful so far. Uh, you know, I don't know you know, what the answers are. I don't know what direction it goes, but, uh, you know, I, I don't like the idea of having a bunch of mediocre and, and even bad teams being in the playoffs when April rolls around. If it were your choice only, let's say you, that there were repercussions, would you choose to have uh, the com- have the conferences matter less in terms of who makes the playoffs? Yeah, I would. I mean, I like, you know, shoot, and, and it's I can say this because I don't have, you know, I don't have to deal with the logistics involved in running the actual league. So I understand there's concerns about different ideas that come up, but 
you know, I, I do like the idea of just top 16, you know, top 16 records getting into the playoffs and, you know, and then you try to schedule things as logically as possible when it comes to travel and whatnot. But, you know, Van Gundy had an interesting idea. He, he said that uh, essentially you kind of market it like a, a no losers club. And so anybody with a losing record, you know, say the last two teams in the East in playoff position had losing records, then you simply take, you know, the next two teams in the West who have winning records and, and essentially give them those spots. Um, you know, and I, I do love kind of that, uh, that's just that concept of, of not presenting a postseason that includes teams that, you know, lost more games than they won. That makes, that's a very interesting idea because it hits on, it hits on kind of the idea of the playoffs being a reward. But what's interesting about the NBA is that it's a league where more than half of the teams make the playoffs. So you're going to run into some you're going to run into some stuff just because if you have if you have let's say you have 16 teams making it in a 30 team league unless they're going to expand it out it's always I think you're just that's just where the lines are being drawn and that's all right. Yeah, I mean, I just to pull up last year, that would have meant that the Bucks would have been out and the Utah Jazz would have been in, you know, and and that's you know the Jazz were four games above 500 and the Bucks were six games under 500. So, uh, you know, if you go year by year, maybe you have a few. Listen, if you don't, you know, if the numbers don't bear out that you can have only winning teams, then, then I guess you got to get over it and have one losing team in there. But the moral of the story, obviously, is that, you know, way too many years where teams in the West who just were simply better teams than, than some of the teams, you know, that, uh, that made it in the playoffs in the East, that's just that's tough for teams to swallow. I mean, even the team that you, you spent a lot of time around, the Warriors, you know, however many years ago it was when they were winning 50 games and and still not only on the outside looking in, but you know they you know they missed the playoff by a, a pretty healthy margin, and uh, you know that's kind of mind blowing, and it, it seems like that to me anyway. That's more than enough to spark a little bit of change. There, one of the things that has been a big impact in that is just the disparity between the high level talent between the two leagues. Are there any guys that in the West right now that you see as a when they get free agency having a meaningful chance to move to the Eastern Conference? Interesting question. You know, I mean, there's some chatter about is Kevin Durant going to be happy enough in Oklahoma City? Yeah, you know, so I don't know, and, and I tend to think that he's not going anywhere. But if he did, you know, does Kevin Durant look at? And I don't have everybody's cap situation right in front of me, but. I mean, the Bulls are pretty capped out for quite a while, so they're, I wouldn't think they're an option. Uh, you know, but who knows? Just, you know, Durant would be a guy, and then you got Kevin Love coming up also, and, and you know, kind of widely known that the Knicks are trying to figure out how to right their ship. You know, does a, a Kevin Love go to New York? Who knows? Uh, and I do think that is what drives, like you said, that's what drives these results is the fact that, you know, Paul George, as great as he is, in the East, you know, he's a diamond in the rough when it comes to stars on that side of the league. And we also, I, I think that the Kobe extension, which we can get into in a second, also likely signifies that LeBron won't be going to the Western Conference, assuming that he becomes a free agent in 2014 rather than 2015. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I think, you know, as you know, everybody assumes that LeBron's going to become a free agent this summer. And the Kobe thing, I mean, you know, somebody – is likely going to go, you know, go join Kobe. I just don't know who it's going to be. And it's kind of like uh, I, I talked to Carmelo. I know it sounded like I'm name dropping, but I ran into the Knicks when I was in Portland last week and did get a chance to ask Carmelo Anthony about Kobe and that situation and the question of, 
you know, kind of the the question that a lot of people don't want to ask, which is, is Kobe even going to be good enough to to make it, you know, appealing for other starters to come to town? And and Melo's point was that we just got to wait and see how he looks. You got to see how he plays in these next four months, whenever he comes back, which you know, obviously, is going to be sooner rather than later. But I'm with you, LeBron. You know, if you're handicapping this thing, is going to stay in the East, and that's great news for the Eastern Conference. But still, you know, even with the two-time champs and and so much star power being on that side of the ledger uh, is still pretty unbalanced. And it's interesting when you talk about Carmelo and Kobe that there was a lot of talk about how the Olympics affected the relationship between the the new Miami three, not new anymore. But as I understand it, there's also some relationship between Kobe and Carmelo that helped helped get stronger by their time in the Olympics together. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, it it, kind of makes sense. I mean, these guys spend – a very unique, you know, type of time together. And, you know, it's almost like, uh, I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but I mean, even if, you know, if uh, this is, <laughs> this is way too much info because it's my personal life, but like I just went on a family trip with some extended family for just a couple of days in another location. It was up in Oregon, in Corvallis, Oregon, and it was only a couple of days and you end up walking away, you know, feeling like you got more meaningful relationships with people like that. I mean, it's human nature, right? So if Kobe, and players like him and, and who think and compete on that level, a guy like Carmelo, are in a, a, you know, a foreign country together and going through things that uh, you know, are unique and memorable, then that's going to happen. Carmelo is probably leading the clubhouse right now, I think, in terms of guys that might join him. Now, that, you know, that being said, you know, if the Knicks can write this ship at all and, and make it a little bit more tolerable for him to stay in New York, you know, he's, he's going to have to leave a whole lot of money on the table if he wants to leave the Big Apple, but, uh, but you know, that's why this summer is going to be so compelling and interesting to watch. It'll also be interesting because there will be some major domino effects, but also some early stuff, because at least in terms of my own information, I have no knowledge whatsoever on whether Bosch and Dwayne Wade are going to use their early termination options or whether they'll, you know, take the sure money and wait a couple of years or whatever they'll do. Yeah. Well, and there's going to be, there's going to be uh, some correlation and some, some coordination, I guess I should say, you know, I think those players individually are going to be talking to each other and, and wanting, you know, each guy's decision is going to affect the other. And so with LeBron having, you know, certainly, I don't know if he said it publicly, but it's, it's believed that he's going to opt out. Then you got to imagine that those other guys are going to want to find out, you know, what's their next contract going to be. But, but, you know, it's all going to, again, it's, it's we're going to talk about it all year long. But you're not going to – the stuff that you need to make a, a real you know, argument, a real case for what's going to actually happen, that information is not going to be available to us until June. I mean that's all this comes down to to me. If, if, they, if Dwayne Wade is struggling physically in the playoffs this year as much as he was last year, you know, if Chris Bosh is, is disappearing like he did and, and not making an impact, then, uh, then all the love that LeBron was talking about right now back in December – and all the affinity and loyalty that he has to Miami is not going to mean much because if he doesn't feel like he can win a championship again and that he looks around and maybe sees something better, then maybe he leaves. You know, But, you know, again, that being said, the, the context is always going to be important. And so far, Daniel, it's, you know, Cleveland was, you know, they was out there as a team that maybe he would go home again and have that once unthinkable reunion with the Cavs. Well, I mean, they're just, there's no way in hell they're, you know, appealing to him right now. They've just been terrible. So, you know, we'll see. But right now, the, the smart money is on guys like him staying put. 
Excellent point. Moving to more on the court, do you have you watched enough of Portland to kind of fe- get a feel for whether they're for real or not as a contender to maybe even host a playoff series in the West? Yeah, I, I mean, I've seen them quite a bit, and uh, they're you know this is probably the case for everybody, but they're you know they're certainly better than I thought they were going to be. I thought they would be right there pushing for an eighth spot in the West. And you know, to your question, are they legit? They're pretty darn legit, and I mean, the reason is that Damian Lillard and, and LaMarcus Aldridge are two of the more consistent and reliable young stars in this league. LaMarcus obviously got a few more years on him, but you know, LaMarcus is playing at a really high level, and I think is at a place in his career where you know he's he's just have a, a different mindset. You know, he's he's gotten paid once already. There, you started having the rumblings that he didn't want to be in Portland, but now I think. You know, he's starting to get convinced that this is a good place to be. You add to those two stars, you know, the fairly consistent play of guys like Wes Matthews and, you know, to a lesser extent, uh, Nick Batum, you know, and then probably most importantly in terms of the the rigors of the NBA season and and whether or not they can remain a top four team is the bench. And if they can keep their bench together and keep them productive, you know, and, and the Mo Williams of the world and, you know, guys like that being healthy, um, and even having, you know, a Joel Freeland coming off the bench, giving him another big behind Robin Lopez, they have some depth. And it, they're one of those teams where if they have an injury to one of the core guys, I think you could have a pretty serious fall off because, you know, if you if you essentially just take take one of their chess pieces away, I think they're going to struggle. But if they can stay healthy, they're really, really good. They also benefit from an unselfishness and ball movement that works well when you're combining starters and bench players. And so they, while I agree with you completely that losing one, particularly Lillard or Aldridge, would be devastating for them, they they do a nice job of using their bench players in a way that kind of keeps them active and keeps them engaged in the game. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. It's, they have a good culture, and that's a cliche that you know word that we use all the time, but it's it's cliche because it's true. The, the culture is good, and, and I've talked to Terry Stotts a pretty decent amount about what they're trying to build, and I, you know, and I did a big piece on Aldridge a couple of weeks ago and, uh, and then actually did a thing on Wes Matthews this week. And they, to me anyway, they seem like one of those teams that has got a, a pretty high level of that, that all-for-one, one-for-all mentality. You know, like when I was asking guys about Wes Matthews, you know, his teammates – it's always a good sign when his teammates' eyes light up, you know, when they're given the opportunity to brag about one of their own. There was, you know, at least from what I could, from what I could tell, not an ounce of, of jealousy going on or, or guys trying to make sure, you know, they're getting their just due. And, and really it's probably just with Aldridge you might have a little bit of that. But the, the productive thing for that team and that group is the fact that, you know, I think everybody should be okay with that. LaMarcus Aldridge is more accomplished, is older, and is you know the veteran presence in that locker room above and beyond any you know everybody else and the teams that have you know more gray area in that regard you know, that's typically where you see problems in the locker room and, and these guys don't seem to have any of that. The Blazers also have the flexibility to add another piece if they can figure out a way to really put it all together and that could that could help them quite a bit moving forward. Yeah, yeah, and that's I give Neil O'Shea a ton of credit. Their GM, you know, it's not often that you see a guy you know, do the kind of work that he's done the last couple of years. I mean, he essentially built the Clippers into a contender and then, you know, got a better opportunity with the Blazers, you know, essentially where he could start over again and had some, some good pieces to work with, with guys like Aldridge. But, you know, he, uh, you know, he drafted Damian, he locked up Batum, 
and and then when Lamarcus was was chirping privately about not liking the fact that he had to play the five spot too much and wanting to be next to a big man, he goes out and gets Robin Lopez. To your question, Daniel, I mean they, I love it when teams they they make deliberate moves, you know, that they see as the type of moves that can make you a championship contender. And with the Blazers, that is offering a restricted uh, max contract to Roy Hibbert two summers ago. But then when they swing and miss on that because the Blazers matched, then they had, you know, the, the patience and, you know, the pragmatic ability to say, you know what, you know, we went big for a move like that, but we don't see anything else out in the landscape right now that can have a similar impact. And so we're going to hold tight. And so in the interim, that becomes a guy like Robin Lopez, where you do that, that trade they did last summer and it works for the time being. And they still haven't, you know, they still have that bullet in the gun, so to speak, when it comes to adding another guy. And, and I'll be curious to see who that is eventually. What's been remarkable is that that patience is similar to what happened with Houston, but we haven't seen, other than the Knicks when they built everything and then they ended up using the space on Amari, we haven't seen the major market teams, let's say New York and LA teams, do much of that, of the really like saving space if they don't have the perfect fit available. Yeah, well, I think part of that is it's the personality of the markets and, and I think what it does to the, the respective decision makers. You have the pressure that comes with, the bigger market where obviously they're, they're, they're making a whole lot more money than other teams in the league. But, you know, with that comes the, uh, the pressure to perform right now. And, and almost this, you know, at its worst, it's this kind of this idea that, you know, hey, listen, just get enough, you know, sexiness out there in terms of the roster, get enough W's to, to claim that you're competitive and, and that's going to work. You know, that that's, it just seems like that's, the, the way the Knicks had, had gone after it, and it's obviously blown up in their face at this point. But, uh, you know, in a market like Portland, you know, it's kind of a, a go big or go home type thing. And, and uh, you know, if you go big too early, you're going to be going home pretty soon. That's an excellent point. Do you do you feel that there are, or do you have any storylines or teams that you feel are being underreported or underappreciated so far? Well, I mean, it's, I got into a tiny little discussion with somebody on Twitter last night about, just the Pacers and, and somebody just hit me up saying, man, they're so disrespected and, and underreported. And, you know, I wrote back and said, man, they're getting loads of credit. What are you talking about? And, you know, the guy wrote back, he said, nah, you know, if you ask anybody at some of the major networks, they'll tell you that, you know, the Knicks and the Nets are going to pull more ratings and, and more page views. And so they get written about more. And, and I hate to admit it. I mean, the guy's not wrong. And so the Pacers, you know, I almost think from a media standpoint, yeah, it kind of got me feeling like, you know, it's on us to make sure that we're reporting what's, you know, what deserves the attention. The Pacers, you know, we should be telling the stories of every single guy on that roster right now, and in my opinion, because, you know, they're so good. And not only that, it's got, you know, it's such a great backdrop coming off of how hard they pushed the heat last year and, and just the whole narrative that, uh, you know, this has become that team that you know tried to break down the door in the playoffs for a couple of years and then matured and evolved and, and is coming real hard after the champs. And so there's really no downside to the over-reporting of the Indiana Pacers. So I'd, I'd probably pick them. That's one team that comes to mind. You know, the unbalance or imbalance of the conferences is, is a big deal, and I'm actually looking at that right now to see if I can pick something else out. I, you know what else comes to mind, Daniel, is, you know, again, this is not going to, to break any uh, web traffic records or anything like that. But 
Dallas and and uh, Monte Ellis and what he how good he's been. I know he's not as good last couple of games, but their ability to get back into the playoff picture and then more importantly, just kind of the appreciation of Dirk Nowitzki and the fact that he's he's still doing his thing. You know, he quietly last week uh, moved up the scoring, uh, you know, the record books once again. I think he's 15th now. And, uh, you know, that I think has definitely been underreported. I mean, we're literally – it's it's kind of a passing mention. Oh, by the way, you know, Dirk, uh, Dirk moved up with some of the greats once again. So, you know, those are the ones that come to mind. The other one that I'd throw in there, because especially how notable it was in the finals, is that the Spurs, they're not, they're a fun team to watch now. I think people have, that's, they got that reputation, particularly in that finals against the Pistons, of, oh, they're just going to slog it out. They have a beautiful team to watch now, and the dynamic of getting that close to winning the championship and then losing is such an interesting thing, but I think that they have this unfair reputation of being boring because their personalities aren't flashy like, I don't know, like Melo or even Kobe in that sense that they get the media attention. Yeah. But they're a beautiful team. They are. No, I mean, that's a great one because they offensively are so sophisticated and any fan who gets tired of, you know, the, the Knicks style of basketball, just pounding the heck out of the, the floor and then not, you know, having the beautiful basketball. And, and this is kind of my, my roots of covering the Kings from years ago, but the Pete Carrill, you know, Rick Adelman, you know, kind of the, uh, the the Princeton style of offense. That's what the Spurs have. It's a different version of it, but they are fun to watch. Um, they don't help themselves at all, you know, with the way they handle the media because their, their consistent narrative is they could care less what anybody thinks about them. Uh, they're always cordial to guys like me and always, you know, just treat me great when I come to town. But, you know, you're not, a, you know, you know, you know, going into town, you're not going to walk out of there with some, half an hour sit down with Tim Duncan. And and so, you know, the the public at large has not gotten to know these guys like I wish they would have. But in terms of the hoops, they're absolutely underreported. I mean, they're playing great ball right now. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I, I think I'm just more, I'm more hopeful about the odd, our odds of over-reporting the Pacers because there's still a lot of, you know, uncharted waters when it comes to that team. We've tried for years to, you know, turn over every stone when it comes to the Spurs. And some great stories have been told, but, uh, you know, I don't think it's nearly as fertile ground when it comes to the media side. I can't let you off the line without asking about DeMarcus Cousins. Do you feel, <laughs> do you feel that he's making progress this year so far? Yeah, I mean, he's playing really well. You know, progress can be gauged in a, a number of different ways. So on the court, he's been. I think he's mostly been a beast. The guy's been, you know, the best player on the team by a long shot. And he just, you know, I think he needs more help. And, uh, you know, they need more athleticism. They need more shooters. And I like the Derek Williams pickup. You know, I don't know what kind of impact it's going to be long term, but I think that trade they made with Minnesota for uh, Luke Mabamute was worth doing. The rest of it, he's coming along. Uh, last night was an interesting kind of, you know, the latest example of where he's at, you know, kind of maturity-wise, where – there was, I don't know if you watched the game at all, Daniel, but I assume you did. But they had this, you know, this awful flagrant two call on him when he caught Andrew Bogut with an elbow when he was essentially trying to clear space down in the post. And I don't think I've ever seen a, a flagrant two get downgraded all the way to an offensive foul, which is obviously two levels down. But the moral of the story was that DeMarcus damn near got himself ejected from the game with the way that he reacted to the bad call. And and that would have been such a DeMarcus moment where, okay, you, yes, you got screwed by the officials, 
but you compounded the problem because you couldn't keep your head together. And, you know, and, and Michael Malone, the coach, had to go over and had to go calm him down. And it seemed like, you know, I, I was kind of chuckling because it's like, man, they've got a strategy in place. Like, it's almost like this whole team of people flocks to DeMarcus instantly when it seems like he's going to lose his mind. And to this point in the season, it's mostly been working. I think he still needs to improve when it comes to trying to lift other guys up. You know, his general demeanor, just more often than not, is going to be, you know, when he gets pissed, it's going to be negative towards his teammates. And there's not as much of that as there was before. And so, he, you know, he does deserve a lot of credit. It's, it's going the right direction. But, uh, you know, I think in order to win games and, and get every one of those guys to buy in, uh, I think he's still got to keep going down that road. Agree completely. Thank you so much for taking the time. Always love having you on, and keep up the excellent work. Thanks, Daniel. Likewise. See you soon. Take care. Thanks again to Sam for coming on. Next up for My Life in Basketball, we have Larry Kuhn. For those of you who don't know him, Larry's a computer scientist by education and trade. He's the IT director for the University of California, Irvine, and has taught computer science. He has applied that and applied his own interest to becoming one of the most knowledgeable and respected guys on the collective bargaining agreement in or out of the league. His work, as you can see it on ESPN.com, New York Times Off the Dribble blog, and Hoops World. He's also written for Real GM at, at other points in his career. It's an honor to have him on, and the main thing to read is CBAFAQ.com. Started in 99. It's a go-to for everybody who's into this sort of thing. Thank you so much to Larry for coming on. You got it. First, I just wanted to walk through kind of how you see your place in the basketball world. <laughs> um, in terms of my place, I mean, you know, people tend to know who I am and come to me for advice on stuff, which I think is a good thing. I mean, when I first started doing this, I don't really, you know, think I I had ever planned on being sort of a, you know, quote-unquote insider, even though I hate that term. Um, but I guess that's what it turned into. I mean, you know, I just started as a fan like anybody else. I was um, someone who read a lot, you know, both in newspapers and, you know, the Internet's coming on. So people were, you know, starting to um, get stuff on the Internet. It was before, you know, every you – know, you couldn't swing a day cat without hitting somebody who writes blocking about basketball – but, you know, people were still, you know, out there. There were national people. There were local people. And, you know, as I'm reading stuff, I'm starting to realize, okay, well, this stuff, you know, they're, they're fine talking about basketball. But when they start talking about the rules of, of the league, you know, trade rules, you know, what kind of contracts can you give to people? You know, what kind of money do you have? What's the salary cap thing all about and how other teams use it? That information really wasn't out there. And, and as I read people writing about it, I'm, I'm realizing pretty quickly they didn't know what they were talking about either. You know, stuff that, that was out there was vague and contradictory. You know, I'd read something one way in one paper and look at another paper, and they're talking about the same thing you know, in an incompatible way. So I'm looking for the this same kind of information, going, okay, well, you know, what are the rules? And in looking around, I, I find out that while the rules of basketball are pretty well documented, the, the the front office rules were nowhere to be found. So I just decided to go for it. Um, I have a computer science background, and 
in my field, there, you know, FAQs abound. Anybody who's an expert in some systems, some hardware, some software, some whatever, is going to write an FAQ and sort of put that out in the public domain as a way to help other people do it. So it became a logical thing for me to just do that for the NBA salary cap based on the information that I had sort of gleaned over time. There actually already was an FAQ out there, but it was like two pages long and two-thirds of the answers were, well, I don't know. So I decided to do it right. You know, I just sort of did a brain dump. I took some information from some friends and put that all together. And, you know, pretty quickly I had the these, you know, first nascent stages of the FAQ done um, over a period of like four days. And then I just got more people together. You know, I was involved in the internet discussion boards on the NBA. So I just grabbed people and said, hey, help me review this, help me clean it up, help me fill it out. And, you know, eventually we just started reaching out to the league, making contact with people. And, and sort of the the key moment came when we finally got in touch with the league office and in touch with the people who actually do the CPA itself. And, you know, they sent us a copy of the CPA itself, which up to that point none of us had ever seen, and we didn't even know it was available. But, you know, had that read the thing through a couple of times, realized that, you know, half of what I had written was just turns out to have been wrong also. So, you know, rewrote the thing, pretty much doubled its length, still had a bunch of questions that were unanswered because, you know, even though the CPA is a legal document and the intent of a legal document is to specify things in precision, you know, with, without ambiguity, it still left a lot of questions. So fortunately for me, they were able to put, put me in touch with people who were able to answer those questions. So by the time I came out with the first version of the FAQ, which was 1999, I was, you know, pretty confident that the thing was pretty good, but I had only ever intended it really for the media and for the fans because, you know, teams and agents and everybody else had the league and the players association. So why would they possibly want to talk to me about any of this? So, you know, I put the thing out there and then I would just, when I read something on the internet that turned out to be wrong, I just write the guy, you know, say, hey, you wrote this, just so you know, this is actually the rule, this is how this works. Oh, and by the way, there's an FAQ out there now, so if you ever want to use it for fact-checking, you know, I encourage you to do so. And the response to that was pretty overwhelming. You know, only really one person ever, shall remain nameless, was ever negative about the thing. Everybody else was great. Then, So everybody started adopting it into the writing process. And then the writing about the, you know, about any CBA-related matters in the league improved drastically. So, you know, I felt good about myself for that, so I took credit for that. But then, you know, completely unplanned by me, my own notoriety started ticking up. So... I, you know, started making contacts with various people around the league. You know, Real GM's one of those things. I mean, Ryan Houck, the the man behind the scenes at Real GM, is you know one of my you know oldest friends NBA wise. You know, we've been you know talking together for quite a, quite a bit. Um, you know, Hoopsworld.com. Steve Kyler had me writing you know r- r- really early on, and always had an open invitation of everyone to come back and do stuff. Um, but then. I don't know, about 2008, 2009, somewhere in there, the New York Times finally did an article on me, and that's when it sort of exploded. ESPN got a hold of me after that and said, you know, hey, we'd love to come buy your FAQ. And I said, no. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, this is, you know, I have a day job, I have a career, this is sort of a separate venture that I want to keep as a hobby, and I'm not really interested in monetizing it, sorry. 
and you know we just eventually talked back and forth and fairly you know after a while it was like okay well we're not going to um you know we're not going to do the faq thing we'll, we'll let you keep that separate but we'd still love to have you come in and join our team so at you know espn saying hey would you you know come right for espn same reaction i had you know new york times asked me to come right for them after they had done an article for me you know how do you turn these guys down so i started writing for them that sort of increased it and, you know, eventually uses of the FAQ started turning up long, you know, well, way beyond what I had ever envisioned. You know, agents were using it. Teams were using it. One team told me the story that, you know, there were three of them in the front office. And whenever they had a question, they would sort of have a little contest. One of them would look in the FAQ for the answer. One would look in the CBA itself, and the third would call the lead office, and they would see who would have the correct answer first. And as it turns out, the guy who looked in the FAQ was always the guy who won. So, you know, it's it, it's sort of a, a slow process of sort of the in, ingratiating myself within the league, too. So, you know, now I've got friends in you know, at least two-thirds of the front offices in the league, and you know, like I said, it's just way beyond anything that I'd ever imagined. It's a really interesting thing because the CBA itself is incredibly complicated. And outside of one of the great things for me about the CBA, about the FAQ is that it not only does it take something that's really complicated and explain it in a really good way, but there are also a lot of people who don't really have access to the CBA in the first place. Yeah, the CBA is actually public now. They um, the last agreement, the Players Association put it up on their website, you know, and even now it's it's available if you know where to look. In fact, if you look in the FAQ, I tell you where to find it. But you're right, it's it's a legal document. It's there for a different purpose. You have to sort of be thinking in the right way in order to be able to interpret it correctly. You know, sometimes even I get it wrong when I when I do stuff. There's one time. One of the league, you know, I had this question because, you know, the way I'm reading it, and I'm, you know, I'm reading it with a fine tooth comb, and I'm, I'm, you know, read through this one section like ten times, and I can't quite, I can't possibly see how this works, and you know, I'm asking the league guys about it, and they said, well, you're, you're using the right, you're reading the right words, but you're stressing the words wrong. Oh, you know, how is, you know, a document that's supposed to be unambiguous like that, how are you supposed to do that? You know, it, it's it's a legal contract um, is all is all of this. And I think I go back to my background again. You know, I don't have a background in law. My background is in computer science. But, you know, in computer science and law, there are a lot of perils. Both of them are trying it's, – it's basically a matter of you're, – you're, your goal is communication. You know, you're you're trying to specify something clearly and unambiguously. It's just that the audience is different. For in computer science, you're trying to express something clearly and unambiguously for a computer to follow. In law, you're trying to express something clearly and unambiguously for people to know what you intended. So there was some crossover there that I was able to take advantage of. But part of it also is just learning to read stuff like a lawyer would read it. And eventually, I sort of caught on, and now now I think I'm pretty good at it. And then. Yeah, um, expressing it for a lay audience, just you know, for the general population, and it's just that's just writing skill, you know. It's just and also coming up with a format for doing it. The FAQ format, pedagogically, is a great format where it makes it really easy to structure things so that um, you know you can present things and answer them in a great format that people can understand. And the FAQ format also allows for easy expansion in the sense that it, it works a lot better in terms of if there's a new idea or a new concept or even a new question because you can either expand within one that you already have or add a new question entirely. 
Exactly. So having it in, you know, 100 and whatever digestible, you know, individual chapters, you know, some of them link to each other, but a lot of them don't, make it easy not only to do that, to make it so that I can expand it or even contract it. I've gotten rid of questions before over time, but, you know, also I could sort of keep some questions targeted at, okay, the casual fan who just wants the basic answer, I can do a basic answer at a high level that doesn't get into all the nitty-gritty details and something, and they're going to get what they need out of it. And then, okay, you start reading the next question after that, and the next question after that, and I go into more and more detail. So the hardcore person who really needs to know exactly how this is going to work, you can find that also, and I can sort of keep those two things separate so everybody's able to get what they need out of it. To me, the other advantage of the FAQ in the ecosystem where the CBA is available but hard to, you know, read in all that sense is that even the idea of using kind of a search function, because the CBA uses specific terminology, which is sometimes different than the, the terminology that the general public uses on that same specific term. So having the, CB, having the FAQ where you kind of go through all of the angles of it, I'm trying to remember, I think it's the bird exception. There's one of them that it, it's used a lot in the CBA, but it has a slightly different name. Yeah, there's and, a lot and, of them. Well, okay, the bird exception is one example of that, where it's it's not it's never called a bird exception in the CPA. It's you know the, the qualifying veteran free agent exception. <laughs> you know, so if you're in there looking for bird, you're you're not going to find it anywhere. You know, and then early bird is early qualifying veteran free agent exception, and then you know the the non-bird, which is you know the one-year version of of bird rights, is non-qualifying veteran free agent. So yeah, the, the terminology is different. The one that gets confusing though is trade exceptions. You know, there there really is no concept in the CBA. You know, no thing, no entity, no defined term that's a trade exception. It's just you know there's one rule that's written. You know, teams have one year to acquire 100% plus you know, $100,000 of salary that they trade away in certain circumstances. Well, the fact that they give you a year means that for a year, there's some state, state, some status that you have. And, you know, people typically refer to that as owning this thing, this trade exception that's never really a, a defined quantity. And then the confusing part of this, the ambiguous part, is that the whole set of rules about how to trade players when you're over the cap the fact that you can acquire players when you are over the cap using these rules, that's called the traded player exception. So that leads to a lot of confusion because when you're in the CBA, when, you, when, you, when you're talking about a traded player exception, you're not talking about that one-year credit. You're talking about the whole rule about trading players. Uh, having spent so much time with the CBA, both with, in your own work in terms of writing about it and with it, is there anything that in particular that stands out to you as something that if you had the power to change it that you would that you would like to see modified in a future version? Yeah, you know, that question gets asked a lot, and I, I really don't know how to answer it because the CBA isn't something that's that was ever designed top-down like that. It's it's a bottom-up thing. It's It's you know, it, it's um, organic rather than holistic. You know, it's designed as a result of a negotiation between two sides who are trying to protect their own interests. So, you know, what you get is a slow carving process, you know, and a push-pull over decades. You know, take the, the last agreement, modify these things, you know, per agreement, and you get the next agreement that somehow sort of works. So, you know, in terms of what I would do differently, you know, and given that playing field, I think that they've done a pretty outstanding job with everything. And you can talk about different things that you would like to see happen. You know, you would like to see 
you know, one easy thing would be, you know, team. There, there's sort of a push and pull between teams wanting to be able to keep their own players. You know, you nobody wants to see like football where it's a hard cap and you have a star player and you got to let him go because you just can't afford to keep him anymore. The NBA system of the soft cap is, is actually pretty brilliant where it gives you the ability to keep players you want to keep under certain circumstances. But then you don't really go that far because you start adding things like luxury tax and now you're right back in the same situation where with this hugely punitive luxury tax that exists now, you really do still have to make those hard choices in some cases. So, you know, some of the, if I was to fix this top down, you know, I would maybe say, well, maybe there really should be a hard cap or at least a much harder cap, which would help even further level the playing field between big market and small market teams. Maybe I would want to see, you know, guys that teams draft and keep through the rookie contracts and into the next extension of the contracts after that, you know, the really expensive star players, maybe the, those guys are taxed at a different rate so that teams are better able to keep those, you know, things like that. You can, you can go big or small, you know, it was, the, the CBA I think could actually be a lot simpler where if it was just a straight hard cap with some accommodation for keeping your own guys after that, um, you know, I think it could work better, but even like I said, that's not the process by which they derive the CBA. So that's really, um, you know, a pretty far away dream. I, I think you've raised a great point in terms of how it's collectively bargained so that there's a trade off with everything. If it were your personal choice, do you support individual max contracts the way the NBA has it? Or w in that sense, would you like something maybe more like the NFL? Yeah. Maximum salaries are, are an interesting concept. And without, you know, when, when they started doing maximum, maximum contract, maximum salaries, um, you know, it was for a good reason um, to help spread the the money to you know the mid level guys. But you know, now with the cap the way it is and the luxury tax the way it is, um, there's some good argument that maximum salaries sort of no longer have a place, and they just make it easier for teams to do what Miami did. You know, if you're trying to, to spread the talent around so that the, the small market teams can also have their share of superstars, you know, the maximum salaries just make it easy for the, the big markets to continue to do what they do. You know, and Amina Hassan for ESPN Insider did a pretty good article, you know, on this, looking at you know how, how maximum salaries outlive their their life. You know, Miami told LeBron James, you know, well, in order to fit you guys in, you guys all have to take you know a million and a half less or so, but we can make it work. You know, which so they said, okay, you know, we want to play together, we're going to do this. Well, what if LeBron James could make thirty million, forty million, because there are no max salaries? Now you're telling him you got to take half the salary that you you could earn out there in the open market, or a third of the salary you can earn out there in the open market. Then it becomes a completely different prospect, and maybe that doesn't happen anymore. You know, maybe we don't really get. The you know the big three superstar packed teams anymore, which I kind of think is a good thing. And also from the GM perspective, you know if you're trying to build a roster, and you know of course you want the one or two or even three, you know top level guys. Well, you can fit those in, in into your budget because you're paying you know for a you know seven to nine year guy you're only paying like sixteen million dollars. You know, for even a 10-plus year guy, you're only paying like $19 million. Well, in terms of a $60 million cap, you can budget for that. But what if there are no maximum salaries? And now you're saying, well, if I want a LeBron James, i got to budget $30, 35000000 million of my cap for this guy, and i got to fit everything else in. I think that that makes it a much more challenging situation for GMs. I think it makes it so that the 
the makeup of teams is going to vary a lot more because teams are going to have different philosophies about how to do that. And I think that it's it's going to make it just much more challenging and interesting. But maximum salaries sort of keep that from happening. And you mentioned this, and Amin talked about it in his excellent piece on it. The other factor with individual max contracts that I don't feel gets enough discussion is that it also provides a huge benefit to the major markets because they can make the argument that, okay, what you're going to make on the floor is very similar, excluding things like taxes and all that, but we can give, we can make you a lot more money off the court. And so they have this argument in places, particularly like LA and New York, where they can say that, and a place, especially if it's a place that has a smaller market that also has a high tax, that also has high taxes, they have, they have actually have less arguments with an individual max than if there wasn't one. Yeah, let me, let me split that answer into two. One for the taxes. You know, yes, it isn't really a level playing field because some states have higher tax systems, some states have lower or or no state income tax. So you look at a Florida or a Texas, you know, where they're not charging state income tax, you're getting, you know, ostensibly 10% higher salary than if you're playing in California, which is, you know, what well, was it, like a 13% rate, you know, at that level of salary. Um, so, it, it's a big difference there. On the other hand, you're only paying that amount. You know, if you're playing in Florida, you're only paying no income tax if you're actually playing in a state which has no income tax because of jock taxes. Jock taxes say, you know, if a, if LeBron James plays in California, for every you know quote unquote duty day he spends in California, he owes state taxes for that one day. So you know, really, it's it's slightly over 50% of his salary is not taxed, and the rest of it's taxed like anybody else, which helps to narrow that gap. The endorsement part is that I don't know that the evidence really bears that out. If you're one of the guys who's really going to get be getting all the endorsements, you know, I don't know that uh, a LeBron James really got less endorsement money in Cleveland than he's getting in Miami. You know, that wasn't just a factor of his fame. Um, you know, Shaquille O'Neal definitely. You know, all the movies that he made, he made while he was a member of the Orlando Magic. You know, most I I don't think that his endorsement deals you know really got that much bigger. So if you're a superstar, they find you wherever you are. You know, some of the the lower level players, okay, you can make an argument for that. If you're a mid level player, you'd rather be in L.A. And you know, be close to some of you know a, a Rick Fox, for example, was somebody who was doing a lot of stuff while he was playing here in L.A. Where when he was playing in Boston, or you know, if he had been playing in Cleveland, something like that, he might not have gotten those opportunities. But you know, for for the big level superstars, they say that a lot. I just don't know that if that's actually true or if it's apocryphal. Well, thank you so much for all the insight. Is there anything else you'd like to walk through? That's about it. If you have anything else, I'm happy to talk more though. I think that's great for now. I, I really appreciate it, and thank you so much for taking the time. You got it. Thanks again to Larry for coming on. Finally, we have Charles Modiano. He writes for Real GM, PopSpot.com, and BlackAthlete.com, analyzing the intersection between sports, power, and privilege through workshops and articles. He and I talk about the Knicks, their present, their future, and pretty much everything in between. Talk for about 24 minutes. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much to Charles for coming on. Absolutely. So one of the big storylines so far this year has been whether or not it's going to reflect the whole year, and I'm guessing it won't, has been the poor play of the Knicks, and I wanted to have you on just to kind of talk about how you see how things have gone so far and where they're going. Well, uh, there are a number of factors that lead to the poor play of the Knicks, but I mean, I mean, I think you really have to start 
with Tyson Chandler injury. I mean, everybody knows that, but it's been devastating. But it's not just that it's been devastating um, that he's injured, but that the Knicks never had a replacement to begin with. They never had a backup to begin with. And we saw last year in the playoffs with an unhealthy Chandler, how Roy Hibbert had his way and how the Knicks looked really, really small and it affected them on defense and the board. So you also have to say, well, why didn't you uh, make uh, get a replacement over the summer, get a backup? Because two things that are constant are defense and rebounding. And you can bring that every night. And you have a structural flaw with the lack of size. Um, and, and we know Bargnoni and Amari, the two guys who are over 6'9 on the Knicks, don't really bring defense and rebounding to the table, um, even, even when healthy. So you start there. And, and then there's, there's another aspect of Chandler, that he plays so well with Carmelo Anthony that when there, there's some, there was a great article last year, interesting article, I should say, it was called the Kobe Assist, and they looked at Kobe's misses and that they were his misses because he drew defenders over, the individual would put, get a putback, and that when you look at his shooting percentage, inclusive of these putbacks was very high. But Kobe was actually second when they did this. And they found Mello had many of these Kobe assists, these Mello assists, because it was Chandler who was so adept at getting these putbacks and having this ridiculously high shooting percentage when folks collapse on Mello. We don't see that anymore. So you start with Chandler, and then we could talk about a, a number of other reasons. Uh, not, uh, of course, J.R. Smith shooting 33% and a host of other reasons. But you start there. Where do you see Amon Shumpert on this team, both kind of more in the present, and do you see him as a long-term part? Do you think that they think of him as a long-term part of this team? I don't think so, and it's not really Shumpert's fault. And, and we're, you know, we're all very sad at that injury because he was playing at a, at a very high level his rookie year, and we don't know still if he's fully recovered. But for good, better, worse, he is one of our only few trade assets, and we need size. And if that means um, Lomir Ashik is out there and on the block with Houston or there are other individuals, I don't see him staying with the Knicks long because you can replace him with a Tim Hardaway Jr. You could, you could – you have a little more depth there, but we need size, period. And he's one of the few trade assets. So I don't see him making it past the trade deadline. Do you see it as basically a slam dunk that, assuming he wants to come back, that the Knicks will pay Mello, whatever, kind of the, the expected salary for him? Yeah, I think if Mello wants to come back, and that's a big if, he, you know, he could possibly go to L.A. But, or something like that, the, the Knicks sign him. I think when you get someone of Melo's caliber at Superstar, it's sort of, well, you can go with the bird in the hand or, well, what else is out there? And while there are certainly some, you know, great free agents that move every every now and then, you know, the big summer of 2010 with LeBron, it's it's playing a dangerous game. And, you know, even sometimes with Chandler, Dallas did not re-sign Chandler. They thought maybe we'd get Dwight Howard. We couldn't. Uh, you know, Houston does get Dwight Howard. You're really, you're really playing lotto to some degree. So I, I understand the differing opinions and approaches, but I would uh, go with the bird in the hand if you could keep someone of that caliber and then hope you could add to someone that would particularly size, uh, uh, whether it's uh, Marcus All uh, uh, as a free agent. You still have some room, but I think the way to go forward is you have to address size because the only way to go through Miami is through size. The reason Indiana plays them so well is Roy Hibbert. The reason any, the reason Oklahoma doesn't stand, stand a chance in the finals 
um, regardless of perimeter players, is because they don't have a center. So if you have any plan to beat Miami, you have to do it with size, as Dallas did a couple of years ago when Chandler was healthy. That's an interesting point in terms of beating them with size. And the other kind of factor in all that is that Chandler is playing really well and he's he's had an excellent time. But he is, at this point, he's already 31. So do you think, uh, I, just watching him as much as you have, do you think that his game is going to age well enough for him to be that guy? Or will it need to be somebody younger like Hibbert or Brooke Lopez? You know what? Your your guess is as good as mine. But um, it's that's, that's a roll of the dice as well when you get into centers in there. In the early, uh, when you get into the 30s, we don't know. It, it, it It's tough. And it seems like Chandler does take a beating, and he does have recurring injuries. So that's that's a tough decision. He plays hard. He plays rebounding defense. If you can go younger, if you can go younger, you go younger. But I think either you could sign Mello, and this is when a couple of years, of course, and, and you can you will still have room to get a second player. But I think that second player needs, needs to be a center. And fortunately for the Knicks, there actually are a couple of guys who fit that. Whether or not they're going to move, we don't know. You know, like saying, speculating about a guy like Roy Hibbert, we have no idea whether he's going to be what he wants in terms of free agency because the fun part about guys like that with with the classes in 15 and 16 is that none of them or very few of them have had true free agency. So they are rolls of the dice, but they're interesting rolls of the dice because we can't predict. It's kind of like LeBron. He had never been a true free agent before he left, so we didn't really know what he was going to do. Right. Well, we can't predict, but it's usually the, the player resigns with their own team. He usually can make more money, and you sign with their own team. And when a player doesn't sign with their own team, it's usually someone, you know, botched it along the way. Now, everyone knew LeBron was, was you know, the – Cleveland had a number of years to give him a second player. Didn't do it. The team botched it. Even if you go back under the different collective bargain agreement with Steve Nash, who's often held up. Um, well, if Cuban wanted to sign Steve Nash, he could have. He didn't put the money down. If you go more recently to Dwight Howard, if, if Lakers, I believe, played it correctly, meaning you don't rehire Dan Tony, who's never been adept at using a big man in any system, and you hired a Phil Jackson or something like that, I think Dwight Howard would still be with the Lakers. So I think you need a combination of luck and that the previous team that could have re-signed you botched something along the way. So it, there, there's a lot of factors, luck in, in, involved. Because I was hoping Chris Paul would come to the Knicks or we'd do something, but you know, Chris Paul, who actually liked Mello and, got a lot, and liked him personally, similar to the Dwayne Wade-LeBron relationship, you had that in place. Um, but you know, the, uh, he resigned with the Clippers, and I think there was more, uh, a little bit more money waiting there as well. Do you have a firm opinion on whether Mike Woodson is a long-term answer for the coach of this team? I, I like Mike Woodson, and I know that's not a popular statement to say right now. Last year, prior to the playoffs, I'm critical of Woodson in the playoffs, of some of his insistence on loyalty to Jason Kidd and others when they were playing poorly. But prior to that, he was the best coach in basketball last year. And, you know, we're in New York, so we forget that in five minutes. But he was the best coach in basketball. He played well. I know George Carl got the, got the award. That was all based on, uh, on a high, thin-air record of Denver at home. And you, can't, you don't just become a bad coach overnight. And he, he progressed with Atlanta. He was also the, the defensive coach with Detroit. So I'm okay with, Dwight Woodson, uh, uh, with Mike Woodson. I, you can't blame Woodson 
for having this lack of size. You know, I don't necessarily see that, that they're not playing hard. I think you have a structural flaw, and I think a number of coaches would, would fail with this structural flaw. And I don't know what to say about J.R. Smith shooting 33% right now. Has he not fully recovered from his injury? Um, is it more mental since the last suspension? I don't know what to make of that, but I have to believe that's going to get better. But I think it's a GM problem, and you have to get sides. You have to get a center. You have to get some rebounding and defense. And until you do that, you can plug in any coach, and any coach um, will probably do poorly. If we're looking, let's say, three years into the future, what players that are currently on this Knicks team do you think are going to be the most important part of their team at that point? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I think you resign Melo and almost anybody else you know, may or may not be there. You know, Felton's underachieving, even though he has a very small contract, and people forget that, you know, I think he gets paid $3 million a year based off his he was out of shape in Portland, and now he seems to have slipped uh, back to some of that poor conditioning. Felton comes and goes with his conditioning. He's a wild card. But you, you basically, from a scoring point of view, you had uh, um, J.R. Smith, who, who, assuming if he gets better, has a reasonable contract at $5 million. So you may see Carmelo and J.R. Smith, and you may not see much more than that, which may be okay. I mean, of course, if you have a young man like Tim Hardaway Jr. I already mentioned Shumpert. Looks like he will probably go by the deadline. But, you know, the, the albatross, we all know, is the Amari Stoudemire contract. So once that comes off the books, that gives you your flexibility. Do you have a feel yet for whether Tim Hardaway Jr. can become more of a starter, whether he's more of a kind of a high-end rotation player who gets a lot of minutes? I don't have a feel. I, I need to see more minutes on the floor. I, I don't have a feel. I, I feel it's too early to talk. Um, I've been burned by getting, you know, maybe it's the fan in me getting a little too excited too early. Like when I was getting excited a few years ago about Landry Field, you know, so, so I'm going to attempt for my uh, assessment on, on uh, young players till I get to see more of him. Yeah. I, I think he could end up being a key in terms of that, because one of the important parts of any good team is having, if you want to call it cheap quality labor and Tim Hardaway Jr. is probably the best chance beyond guys that they can get on the minimum because they play in New York of, getting that really cheap but quality young player in there. Sure, I mean, sure. sure. And he, he makes he makes Shumpert expendable, and uh, let, let's see him. He, he, you know, you definitely see uh, moments of, hey, he could be something, but we just need to see more time on the floor. But I'm, he's one of the few young, promising players that uh, I feel good about, certainly. Has Bargnani been about what you expected, better or worse than that? I mean, I, I think Bargnani's been – you know what I expected. Um, he's shooting five, I think, 46%. I didn't expect much more. You knew you, you, you got a guy who rebounding and defense is not his forte. When you add a team, you need rebounding and defense. That's not his fault. That, that's, that's the guy you got. And I think we're getting what was expected. I don't always know if he should be, um, um, you know, now that you have Jared sometimes starting, starting. I don't know. It's hard to say. You know, it's hard to say. You may have to just play around a little bit. Yeah, but as advertised, I think. No more, uh, no less. That that makes sense. And and I think I think that it's a fair point to bring up that he pretty much, he is what, what you expected him to be when you, when you brought him in. It was just that the decision process and that some people disagreed with. But anyway, 
So then if you're if you're looking forward and let's say hypothetically that Carmelo leaves, let's say he goes to the Lakers, then do you think that Knicks fans are kind of ready and willing to be to wait for the right the right player to come in free agency? Uh of, let's say it takes until 2016. Knicks fans aren't ready to wait 5 minutes. You know, if you come from other places, patience is a virtue. It's not in New York City. I, I've been a, a Yankee fan my whole life. We just <laughs> Ellsbury for a gazillion dollars yesterday. It, it's part of the New York culture that uh, uh, win now. I don't think our fans are ever ready to wait, whether sometimes it's the right move to wait. So my answer is almost always no. And the New York media has a lot to do with that. I mean, if you, you're there, you have three papers, you walk down the street, you see the New York Post, you see the Daily News, 90% of the time it's negative, and there's this rush. So even if you're not watching the game, there's always a feeling that um, the Knicks are bumbling and why don't they just make this trade to get LeBron? If we just packaged Shumpert and Hardaway Jr. together, we could get LeBron. I mean, there's this, that's I'm fucking man on the street, not, not the real GM crowd. Do you think that that ownership can or would get the benefit of the doubt if they kind of showed a vision, or is it just kind of that's the mentality of it, regardless of whether it looks like there's a plan or not? I, yeah, I think I think that's the mentality. I think that's the mentality of it. You have to have a combination of vision, but I think you have to show that you're on your way to the vision. I think that went back earlier to my thought about you keep you need you need two superstars. So if you have a, a mellow, you're one away. And if you have a mellow, you have a chance for another via trade. There's always a via trade. And if you have someone coming off a contract, the, the one piece of leverage the Knicks have always had is money. And it means, um, who knows, you know, Boston went from nothing to champions overnight with a Kevin Garnett trade. And with some help between some friends of Ainge and McHale, and we could argue that. But you know, with the right trade and, and using your money as leverage, things can turn around quickly. So that, if you actually go through NBA history, that is more, a more likely route than the lotto that is free agency, although the lotto that is free agency um, it seems really appealing. And it's also interesting for the Knicks because, at least conceptually, and they've gotten they've gotten more high level guys to change addresses than almost any other team. I mean, the Lakers have done have probably done the most of that, and Boston in recent years has done well. So it, it's an interesting balance because they're one of the few teams that can actually have the expectation that hey, if we have space, we can get somebody good. And that that's I, I think there has to be some assurance to that because even I mean, Amare obviously it's worked out horrendously. But he was a he was a high end player in a lot of ways when they got him. Yeah, he he was a high end player. The problem, as you all know, and I, and I appreciated your uh, your analysis in your article yesterday. He he is a high end player, and it came down to the contract being uninsured. If I recall, Phoenix wanted to sign Amari for three years or, or a couple of years, and hey, if there's no insurance, we can't do it. So that came back to bite us, but if you look at 2010, it was about LeBron and Amari was sort of this consolation prize. And, and don't get me wrong, we were all very excited at the level of his play the first year. We were, but that was being starved. Now, if you don't uh, if you eat oatmeal for 10 years and someone gives you a steak, you're going to say, oh my goodness, I'll take that for one year. And I think that's where Knicks fans were. 
But we have to also analyze, really analyze the cost of Amari Sotomayor. And, I mean, we shed David Lee's. We threw David Lee away for Anthony Randolph to, to cut room. We threw Jamal Crawford and, and Zach Randolph away, six man of the year and all-star, to create room. Donnie Walsh has given much credit for this, and, and I always think that's one of the greatest myths in basketball, that Walsh cleaned up Isaiah's mess. Actually, what Walsh did is gave away a lot of good players that got nothing in return to save one year, 2010 to 2011, of contract and money. And then maybe one of the worst trades, because Jamal Crawford and Zach Randolph were talented, you could easily swap them. Jared Jeffries was not so talented. So you had to give away something just to get a taker for Jared Jeffries' contract that ended in 2011. So what you gave away is Jordan Hill. We could sure use his rebounds right now. And you gave away a first-round pick on top of that just to move um, Jared Jeffries. So when we talk about the cost of Amari Stoudemire, we shed David Lee, Jamal Crawford, Zach Randolph, um, Jordan Hill, and a first-round pick with absolutely nothing in return. The interesting part of the Knicks in the last decade is that, and and you, a lot of it comes in through that answer, is that they've had a lot of talent come through the organization. It's just that it's been in it's been in strange combinations at strange times, and it's interesting to think as as kind of as you alluded to in the answer about what could have happened if they had kept certain pieces together as opposed to kind of keeping everything moving as much as they did. Well, well, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'm not suggesting they keep all the pieces. I, I have uh, uh, defended Isaiah in the past in that when he, when he came in in 2003, he actually had no trade bait. He had no pieces, no pieces to get talent. So what, he, what Isaiah was forced to do was draft well, which he did, but he was forced to, to get terrible players and try to, to get more talented players, even though those talented players did not mesh, most notably the Eddie Curry, Zach Randolph um, front court that, that uh, was Matagordi, as Clyde Frazier might say. So that didn't mesh um, very well. But there was a great upgrade in talent that Isaiah has never actually ever gotten credit for during his five years. And what happened is there's actually been a downgrade in talent. So, so Walsh walked in and should have taken the upgrade in talent that was given and traded some of those pieces for more other talent that had better chemistry. That actually didn't happen. Um, so we're, we're in a different space. But your point about having talent mesh is important, but you can only do that when you actually have talent to trade. That's a fair point. Is it, are there any other are there any other topics that you'd like to run through, or have we kind of hit, hit every major base on the Knicks so far? Yeah, I mean, I, I, actually, no, I do want to hit one major thing, and then there's been talk about we lost some of the key vets from last year. But I don't want to sound too much like a whiner, but in all my years <laughs> of watching uh, uh, basketball, I've never seen a player of Carmelo Anthony's caliber not get called. So Mike Woodson alluded to it last week. And, you know, anytime a hometown person says he says a whiner. But if you go to the videotape, I'm, I'm really beside myself when I see uh, Paul George gets this ridiculous call at the end of the Indiana game to turn an Indiana win, and Melo gets mauled. Or when I go to the Indiana series and see in the last three games of the playoffs, Indiana shot averaged 20 more free throws. And if you look at the tape, I, I ask myself, I cannot believe what I'm watching. It happens so consistently, and anyone who's on Twitter, when it blows up, it's like, why can't Melo get a call? 
and I can't understand it. This is a factor that actually um, swayed a, a few games, and I, I don't get it. But that has to be <laughs> has to be said. Do you think that could possibly derive from I, people say similar things more often about big men like true centers? Dwight Howard gets hit a lot. Is it maybe that? I, I'm not trying to justify it, but sure. could it possibly derive from him banging, from initiating a lot of contact, and so refs just officiate him differently in a negative way? It, it's po- it's possible. I mean, it's possible. I almost don't know the answer, but it's it's possible. But I see a guy who's much less physical, like a, um, a Kevin Durant shooting five more free throws a game, and and you almost blow on him, and 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 you're getting the whistle. I would think Melo's physicality would um, give him more um, um, free throws. But, but the reason that the, the, with Dwight Howard is generally the bigger guy there. I mean, he's generally a, you know, stronger. You see his arm. Melo down low is often a smaller guy. He's often being banged against, against a bigger center, someone there. And, I, and, and he's not getting it. So in that sense, I don't understand it as well. So there may be some validity there. But versus the, I mean, just the the eye test of the of what I'm watching, he doesn't get it. I mean, even even the other night at the last second shot, uh, you know, there it wasn't even talk much about hitting his hand, and that was a light one. But I don't know. You see, I'm talking to you. I'm beside myself. But you know, the, the, I have to honor what what uh, Twitter blowing up almost all the time because this is what's being said all the time, and and there's validity to it. Do you reach a point where it as as frustrating as it is that that's just kind of a fact of life with him and actually impacts his value moving forward? Where if he's just never going to get those calls, considering considering he's going to turn thirty at the end of this year, can that be something as ludicrous as that sounds to actually consider when thinking about how valuable he is? It might be. I mean, it, it might be if if, if uh, he's not going to get calls, he's not going to get calls. But, you know, I, I won't, won't give up the argument, and nor do I think Woodson should give up the argument, although it costs him a whole lot more than it will cost uh, me and, and folks on Twitter um, in saying it. But uh, there is, I mean, if you go back to the Pat Rileys, we defended our players. You played, the, you played the refs. You played the press. You, that was part of coaching. You said, hey, my guy is not getting treated fairly. Whether that can have an effect or not, I'm not sure. But I think that is part of coaching, of pointing out or showing videotape. Mark Cuban would send a videotape to the NBA offices every other day. Of course, that didn't endear him to David Stern. But I do believe that you feel you're not getting fair calls. You have to point that out. But to your question, it, it may very well be the fact that he's never going to get those calls for whatever reason. Yeah, and I, I fully I fully agree with you that that's a role of coaching and that's a role of management. And I think the other classic example of that is Phil Jackson. I think Phil Jackson did a lot of that at various points in his career of talking about how his teams were not officiated well. You know, sometimes it made a difference, sometimes it didn't. But the, but it's all you. I think you always have to try. And that's a great point. Phil Jackson was a master at playing the rest. Okay, well, thank you so much for taking the time. We'll have to see how this turns out both this year and beyond for the Knicks, but hope to have you on sooner than that so we can talk about what's happened since. Hey, Danny, I really, really appreciate the opportunity to talk Knicks anytime. And the only request I have is, is, is next time we talk, could they be on a 10-game winning streak or something? If it happens, absolutely. <laughs> Great. Take care. Thank you. Thanks again to Charles for coming on. You can read him at RealGM, PopSpot.com, and BlackAthlete.com. And thanks again to Sam Amick, 
who you can read USA Today, and you can follow him on Twitter, at Sam underscore Amick. And to Larry Kuhn for coming on for My Life in Basketball. You can follow him on Twitter, at Larry Kuhn, or you can read him. His main site is CBAFAQ.com, or you can read him a series of other places. And I really appreciate everybody coming on. Uh, Thank you all for listening. As I always say, this is a collaborative process. Try to make everything better. If there's somebody that you want on the show, please let me know at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or email daniel.larue at realgm.com. And just as importantly, let them know that you want them to come on. I'm willing to have anyone and everyone excited to have lots of new and different and exciting people. And anything that can make that happen is great. So thanks again for listening. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even